All right, as Bruce said, this is going to be the end of Acts 4, verses 32 into the 11th verse of chapter 5. Um, it's found on page 629 of the Pew Bible, and we're going to be going into 630 as well. All right, if you'll follow along with me. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of the one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of things, the things that they possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as had needed. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostle, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back a part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the feet of the apostles. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived these things in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, breathed his last. So great fear came upon all of those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead, and carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Lord, we come to you right now. I just want to thank you for your mercy and your grace, God. I just pray for all of us to remember all these things and not take you for granted and think to prop ourselves up when you are the only one worthy and of such praises and honor and glory, God. Thank you for the opportunity to be in this church, God, to worship and to read scripture and to thank you, God. And I pray for Bruce as he leads and speaks today that you would uh, use him in every way as you, as you see fit. And pray this in your name, amen. I'm sure most of you here have, at one time or another, at least once in your life, have uh, been to a cemetery. Perhaps you have attended a graveside service here uh, in the last year or two. Perhaps you've even gone to a graveside to lay flowers at the graveside of a loved one. But did you know that the term graveyard primarily referred to a burial ground within the churchyard? In fact, historically, the most common use 
of churchyards was, cons- was a consecrated burial ground known as a graveyard. Such graveyards were usually established at the same time as the building of the church, which can date back all the way to the 6th century, B- uh, not B.C., but 6th century A.D. through the 14th centuries in Europe. In fact, the use of churchyards as burial grounds for the deceased uh, was discontinued all over Europe in various stages between the 18th and 19th centuries due to a, a lack of space for new headstones. Perhaps the use of churchyards as graveyards finds its origins right here in Acts chapter 5. When two church members are buried in the churchyard after dropping dead in the church. Now, in 20 years of ministry, I have to admit, I've seen people get sick in a church service. I've seen people have seizures in a church service. I've seen people pass out in a church service and possibly even have a heart attack or two in a church service. But in 20 years of ministry, I've never seen anyone drop dead in a church service. Have you? I didn't think so. And yet we have that account here in Acts chapter 5. And so the death of this married couple is shocking to say the least. It's very shocking. Especially when you consider why they dropped dead. They died because they lied to God. They died because they tried to deceive the spirits. They died because they tried to fool the church. They died because they pretended to be more spiritual than what they really were. And so these fresh graves in the churchyard are a sober warning for those who claim to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a sober warning for us here at Glenwood even today. And the sober warning is pretty clear, it's pretty simple, and it's profound, and it's simply pretenders beware. You could just write that over Acts chapter 5. Pretenders beware. And what we're going to see here in this passage of Scripture that Jeremy read for us is that the sin of pretending is very dangerous. In fact, it's even deadly in this case. Therefore, we desperately need great grace. And we desperately need great fear in our church, on our lives. Hypocrisy is nothing new in our world. In fact, here lately, in the last five or ten years, it seems to be the norm now among celebrities and athletes. In the last few years, we've had Major League Baseball players suspended for using PEDs. In fact, there was just another one yesterday. One of the New York Mets has now suspended 80 games for using PEDs. We've had a pop singer lip-syncing at the presidential inauguration. We've had an NFL player with a fake online relationship. And after fighting a highly publicized bout with cancer, most people are familiar with bicyclist Lance Armstrong, who then went on to win seven Tour de France titles between 1999 and 2005. It seemed like cycling was in his blood. The greatest comeback story in all of sports sucked in the media, the sponsors, cancer patients looking for a hero. It seemed almost un-American not to root for Armstrong and wear Livestrong bracelets. 
In fact, Sporting Kansas City even named their stadium for this. Then they had to change the name of their stadium for this. Until it was discovered that there was more than cycling in his blood. Apparently, he won all those titles while using illegal substances. And the chief executive of the U.S. anti-doping agency called Armstrong and his team, of, his team as organizing the, quote, most sophisticated, successful doping program the sport has ever seen. In October 2012, Lance Armstrong was stripped of all seven of his Tour de France victories and permanently banned from cycling. Now, that news doesn't really affect us all that much. In fact, we just kind of shake our heads at stuff like this. But if truth be told, we're all a little bit like Lance Armstrong. In his article, Living Like Lance, Everyone Dopes, Jay Wood says there's a little bit of Lance in each of us. There's some truth to that. And for this reason, the sin of pretending often infects the church today just as it infected the early church here in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5. If there's one thing Jesus rebuked when he was on this earth over and over and over again, it was hypocrisy, which is the opposite of authenticity. And what we see here in Acts 5 is that God has not changed his views towards hypocrisy in the church. God hates it. And he deals with it swiftly and severely. But the gospel, oh, thank God for the gospel. Praise God for the gospel because the gospel says that Jesus came to kill our hypocrisy and through his work on the cross, he bridges the gap between what we say we are and who we really are. And by the way, we all have a gap in our lives, do we not? A gap of who we pretend we are and what we really are. And Jesus is the one who bridges that gap. We find grace in Jesus Christ. We find hope in the gospel that covers our hypocrisy and makes up the difference. And so for this reason, we desperately need the grace of God. We desperately need also, though, the fear of God in our lives and on our church. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, that great grace was upon the church here in Jerusalem. And the effect of this great grace was authenticity among the believers in the church. But Luke goes on and he tells us in Acts chapter 5, in fact he mentions it twice, that great fear came upon the church after God dealt with the hypocrisy that was infecting the church. In other words, we could say it like this, great grace plus great fear promotes authenticity in the church, but it also purges hypocrisy within the church. And so I want to us to look at for a few minutes here this morning on these two ideas of great grace and great fear because we desperately need both, don't we? Number one, we need great grace to practice authenticity in the church, to live out authenticity among each other. In fact, the impact of the gospel made on these disciples in the Jerusalem church is simply amazing. In fact, it's astonishing the impact that the gospel made on them. You see it in their unity. You see it in their generosity with one another. And it's mixed with this sweet 
fragrance of authenticity, and we love that. It's refreshing when you see someone who's authentic and real. In other words, there was nothing phony about these disciples here in the early church. Their spirit of unity, their spirit of generosity was authentic as a result of God's great grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, look, look how Luke describes these disciples in verse 32. I love how he begins this in verse 32. He says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. In other words, there is a spirit of unity among these believers. And then he goes on, he says, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. There's your spirit of generosity, and it's all mixed with authenticity. In fact, this is the effect of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at it in your notes coming up on the screen. The effect is this, the heart is firm in our love for people, and it is free from the love of things. Did you catch how Luke describes these disciples here in this early church at Jerusalem? He says, now the multitude of those who what? Those who believed. This is key. Believing in the gospel. Believing in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. As the one who died on the cross for your sins. The one who resurrected from the grave. The one who now reigns on high and reigns in our lives. In other words, he's not just Savior, he's Lord. And we believe, we've committed our lives to him, we have put our faith and trust in him. That describes these believers, does it describe your life? And this believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Luke tells us it had two effects on these people had two effects on the church. It creates a bond of love to people, but it also cuts the bond of love to things. You see, these believers were some of the most generous people on earth. Some of the most giving people on earth. Nobody was like, hey, that's my house. Hey, that's my phone. Hey, that's my car. Hands off. Don't touch. Nobody was like that. Instead, they had all things in common. Their possessions, their properties, you name it. In fact, they were so full of God's grace that they loved each other. And they loved each other so much that they sold their possessions in order to make sure that the poorest among them was provided for. Look what Luke says. Look what he writes, how he describes them in verses 34 and 35. He says, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. In other words, who, who did, they didn't have any needs there. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the, of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now, let me set your minds at ease. This is not a form of communism in the church. Rather, it's a snapshot, it's, it's a picture for us of a community of people whose hearts have been radically transformed by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As pastor and author John Piper describes them, they found themselves freely caring about people and freely selling land and houses and freely giving the money to the church for the distribution to people in need. Why? 
Because the gospel had loosened their grip on stuff and it tightened their grip on one another. That's always what happens when the gospel gets a hold of your heart. Your heart is loosened in its love of things and it's tightened in its love for people. And to make this real for us, to make this kind of come alive for us, he gives us an example of this kind of generosity in action. Notice this. Barnabas is a shining example of authentic generosity in the church. Now, I love Barnabas. Barnabas was the real deal. He was the real deal. What you see on the inside, I mean, on the outside of Barnabas is simply a reflection of the change Jesus brought on the inside of his life. Barnabas is a picture of the difference that Jesus makes in a person's life. We see Barnabas here. He's mentioned briefly in verses 36 and 37. Let's read it again. Look at it. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the disciples, which is translated son of encouragement, he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus. And having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the first time we hear of Barnabas. He's mentioned several times throughout the book of Acts, as we're going to see. Later in Acts, we'll see that Barnabas was one of the first ones to stick up for a guy named Paul after his conversion to Christ. Paul may know him as Saul. Saul was a murderer, a hater, a persecutor of Christians. And when Saul comes to Christ... He changed, God changed his name to Paul, and let me tell you, the church is a little suspicious of this. Barnabas sticks up for him. Barnabas is also the one leading the church, Antioch church and reaching out to all peoples and pastoring all the Gentile converts. Barnabas is the one who's put in charge of taking relief money to the church in Jerusalem when it's hit with a famine. Barnabas is the one who partners with, with Paul on his first missionary journey. In fact, Barnabas is also the one who gives John Mark a second chance after he quits on Paul on one of the missionary journeys. Barnabas is like, hey, I'll take him with me, and I'll, we'll go out together and spread the gospel. And so it's no wonder that the apostles here called him Barnabas. Barnabas was his nickname. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And every time you read a Barnabas in the book of Acts, let me tell you, he's encouraging and helping somebody. And so here in Acts 4, Barnabas is doing just that. He's helping some of the believers here in the church at Jerusalem. He's helping the poor. He felt convicted to sell his property and take the money and give it to the apostles to care for those in need who were part of the church in Jerusalem. And as a result of this, you can imagine how others in the church community felt about him. When they saw Barnabas doing this, let me tell you, they applauded him, they appreciated him, and they admired him. Now, at this point, some of you may be wondering, man, does, does this mean, Bruce, I, I, gotta, I have to sell my house? Does this mean I need to put a for sale sign on my car? Does this mean I need to give up my iPhone and put it on eBay or Craigslist and sell in my, I, you know, whatever. Is that what this means? Is that what Luke is telling us here? Well, notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. The practice of selling one's possessions and giving the proceeds to the church to distribute to people in need was voluntary. And it was motivated by love. Nowhere do we read 
that Peter commanded this to be done. The selling of land, the selling of houses, the selling of property here in Acts chapter 4 was entirely voluntary. There's no evidence of compulsion or legislation going on by the apostles. Rather, listen to me, what you see happening here, the generosity among these believers here in Acts 4 is the evidence of God's great grace working in the lives of these disciples. Their heart is free from the things. And their heart is now firm in their love for one another. That's the difference the gospel makes. When the gospel gets a hold of your heart, man, stuff changes. It's radical. It's countercultural. Luke stresses the freedom of this generosity. Later in Acts chapter 5, there's a man by the name of Ananias, and he sells his land, and he brings part of the proceeds to the apostles, just like Barnabas did, and he says he brought all of it. But in reality, he lied. And he kept back part of the proceeds for himself. And, and so Peter, he probably imagines to himself that this might be the way you would act if there was some type of external constraint on you, if this were not a matter of freedom, but you felt like you had to do this. Somebody's holding a gun to your head, in other words. And so Peter tells Ananias that there's no such constraint going on in the generosity Ananias sees all around him in the church. No, no. Peter points out to him, Ananias, what you see going on in this generosity, these people are acting out of freedom and they are motivated by love. Why? Because they've been impacted by the love of Jesus Christ. And now they want to show that love among each other to help people out in need. And so Peter asks Ananias a question. In Acts chapter 5, verse 4, he says, while it... While that is Ananias' property, while it remained, that is, while it was in your possession, was it not your own? In other words, Peter is saying, Ananias, there aren't any church rules here that say you have to sell your land and house, that it's not yours anymore. Ananias, if people around you are saying, my possessions are not mine anymore, this is not because they have to say this, it's because they want to say this. They've been chained from the inside out by the gospel. And then Peter goes on to say in verse 4, And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, Peter's telling Ananias, Ananias, nobody forced you to bring any of your money in here to the church. You're free to keep it all, or you're free to keep part of it and give part of it, or you're free to give all of it. You're free. So I hope you see here, in this particular example of Barnabas, in the example of the church here at Jerusalem, I hope you're seeing that giving, both then and now, even today, is voluntary, but it's motivated by love. The goal, listen to me, the goal here at the church of Jerusalem was never the redistribution of wealth, but the meeting of needs through authentic generosity. And authenticity, get this, whether it's seen in our unity, whether it is seen in our generosity, flows from God's great grace 
working in our lives. We need the grace of God to practice authenticity in the church, in community with each other. Authenticity is a beautiful thing, is it not? We respect people who are authentic. We want to be around those type of people. Let me tell you, authenticity is attractive. And it's no different today. A church that is authentic is attractive to the outside world. To those who do not yet know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. We want to be an authentic church, but to be that, we need the grace of God on our lives to work in our lives, through our lives. We want to be authentic in our unity and in our generosity with one another. We want to be authentic, but we need the grace of God. We need great grace to be upon us. But we also need great fear. We often don't hear that. We often don't talk about that. But this passage in Acts chapter 5 reminds us that we also need great fear. Why? To guard against hypocrisy in the church. The reality is we're all, all prone to the sin of hypocrisy. Would you agree with me? I'm reminded of the story of a 12-year-old boy who was waiting for his first orthodontist appointment. And like all 12-year-old boys who are waiting for their first orthodontist appointment, he's a little bit nervous about it. Apparently, he wanted to impress the orthodontist, so on the patient questionnaire in the space marked hobbies, he wrote, swimming and flossing. <laughs> I have yet to meet a 12-year-old boy who flosses as a hobby. Now, that's a humorous example of how we're all prone to hypocrisy. But folks, listen to me. Spiritual hypocrisy is not humorous. It's a dangerous and even deadly sin in this particular case. What is hypocrisy? Well, I like the definition that Warren Wiersbe gives in his commentary. He writes, notice it in your notes, hypocrisy is deliberate deception. It's deliberate deception. It's trying to make people think we are more spiritual than we really are. I wonder how many of us engage in impression management to manipulate people's opinions of us. One author writes, good wishes can be mistaken for prayer. Success can be misconstrued as spiritual achievement. Inspirational bumper stickers and symbols can be seen as evangelism. Excellent music can cover for authentic worship of the heart. Humorous or emotional stories can pass for inspired preaching. Christian cliches can be handed out as biblical wisdom. And attractive personality can be mistaken for a spirit-filled life. George MacDonald writes, Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. This was Ananias and Sapphira. This was their problem. And it was a problem of the heart. They were trying to make people think they were more spiritual than what they really were, and it cost them their lives that Sunday. We see, what we see is hypocrisy in action, 
Luke gives them to us as an example. Ananias and Sapphira are examples of hypocrisy in the church. Luke begins Acts chapter 5 with this word, but. Do you have the same word in your Bibles? Look at it. Verse 1, Acts chapter 5, begins with the word, but. And the reason is that it's not accidental, but intentional. Luke is showing us that we have three people here as examples. We have Barnabas, we have Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who all look the same on the outside. If you were to stand Barnabas up here on the stage, the platform, along with Ananias and Sapphira, you would see no difference on the outside. They all look somewhat the same. I'm sure Ananias and Sapphira were friendly. I'm sure that they were liked. On the outside, they appeared the same. But they are being contrasted here by Luke. And the contrast that Luke wants us to see is on the inside. And what Luke is contrasting for us in these examples is Barnabas' authenticity with Ananias and Sapphira's hypocrisy, which is always, folks, listen, a heart issue. Let's read about their hypocrisy again in Acts chapter 5. Look with me again at this, verse 1. It says, but, that is in contrast to Barnabas, but a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? So why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Oh, Ananias, you have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Those young men, those were the interns of the church. They always get jobs like this. Mike's been doing an internship here at our church. Mike, aren't you glad you haven't had to bury anybody yet? Out here in the churchyard. So what about Sapphira, the wife? What's her story? Well, her story is found in the following verses, 7 through 10. Look at it. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in. Luke doesn't tell us why there's an interval of three hours. Perhaps she was out shopping, spending part of the proceeds they kept back. I don't know. So it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me, whether you sold the land for so much. Now let's stop there for a moment, because that is a tense moment. Ladies, what is she supposed to do right here? What is she supposed to say? You agree with your husband to misrepresent yourselves. And now you're asked publicly about it. And this is where wives... If I can encourage you, you need to understand that submission never means following your husband into sin. Submission can mean following your husband into a mistake. 
but never sin. But that's exactly what Sapphira does. She follows her husband into sin. Look at it in verse 8. Here's her response. She said, yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Whoa. Whoa. Two fresh graves in the churchyard. Makes you wonder why. Why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? What were they thinking? Well, Pastor J.D. Greer put it this way. Their lies, quoting him, were symptomatic of a much deeper problem. They love money and they love the praise of people and they want the praise of people, but they don't want to give away all their money. So they tell a lie so they can keep their money and get the praise of people. Bible scholar John Stott writes, and he says it this way, they wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had not no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their ego. So does everyone, does everyone who lies like this couple get struck dead? Well, thankfully, the answer is no, right? Oh, thankfully, the answer is no. Listen to me. In His grace and in His mercy, God does not deal with all hypocrites in the church like He dealt with this couple. Otherwise, our churches would soon become morgues. At the same time, we should be very careful here. Very careful of presuming on God's grace and mercy and assuming we're safe and secure in our hypocrisy. And so for this reason, I would encourage us here, we should take heed to the lessons from these two fresh graves in the churchyard. What are those lessons? Well, one of them is, remember the seriousness of sin. We need to remember the seriousness of sin. Listen, sin is always a serious issue, and it is especially so here. Perhaps we're too prone to, to feel sympathy for Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, after all, all they did was sell a piece of property and keep back some of the proceeds for themselves and give the rest to the church. I mean, on the surface, that sounds pretty noble, right? I mean, how many of us have done that? Probably only a handful of us have actually sold something that belonged to us and given part of the proceeds to the church. So on the surface, this is a very noble act that Barnes, Ananias and Sapphira have done. After all, the couple was not under any obligation to sell their property, nor having sold it, were they obligated to give all the proceeds to the church. So what was their sin here? Well, Ananias and Sapphira lied to God, they lied to His Spirit, and they lied to His church when they kept back part of the proceeds. In fact, the phrase here, kept back, it's an interesting phrase. It's only mentioned 
and you find that in verse 3, it's only used one other time in the New Testament where it is translated, get this, as pilfering. It's the idea of embezzlement. So perhaps some Bible scholars believe that maybe Ananias and Sapphira had entered into some kind of understanding or even a contract with the church before they sold the property that they would give all of the proceeds to the church. Whatever the case, we don't know for sure, whatever the case, here's what we do know. That when Ananias and Sapphira brought their offering, they gave the impression that it represented 100% of the purchase price of their land, that they were giving 100% of the proceeds. In the words of pastor and author Ken Hughes, he says, but this was pious pretense. This was a religious sham. This was simulated holiness. This was Christian fraud. They wanted to appear more spiritual than they were, so anyone watching would say, oh, what wonderful Christians they are. Look at them. Look at them. I can't, look what they did. Oh, they're so, wow. They've given all they have. And apparently, they thought God would be fooled too. That was their great sin. And that is why they died. Ananias and Sapphira tried to fool the church. And they tried to fool God. And they dropped dead in their tracks for it. These two fresh graves in the churchyard is something, listen, we can never forget. We must never forget. It's been said it's partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin will provoke God's wrath. We must see hypocrisy from God's eyes, His point of view. You see, we're used to it. It's, it's the norm in our world today. And unfortunately, it's somewhat the norm in churches. And yet, we must not accept the norm. We must accept God's standard. Listen, it was because of sin that Jesus died on the cross to pay for the penalty of that sin. And thankfully so. Therefore, God hates the sin of hypocrisy. The death of Ananias and Sapphira is a sober warning to the church that God will not tolerate phony Christians, and sooner or later they will be dealt with by God. So the first lesson from these two fresh graves in the churchyard is remember the seriousness of sin. The second lesson is recognize the wickedness of Satan. Did you notice the question that Peter asked in verse 3? He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Now what's interesting is Luke. Remember, Luke is the author of Acts. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so what's interesting is Luke says the exact same thing when Judas betrayed Jesus. He says, hey, Satan has filled your heart. And so Luke is telling us that behind, get this, behind the, the wicked and sinful deeds of both Judas and Ananias is the wickedness of Satan. Before the cross, Satan's strategy was to kill Jesus. But after the resurrection, his strategy is now to destroy Jesus' church both from within the church, like he's trying to do here, and also from without the church. The rapid growth of the church must have, must have caused the, the prince of darkness here to tremble. The sight of unity 
Generosity and authenticity among these disciples meant that something needed to be done to stop the church. And, and so Satan's attack signaled his strategy to cripple the church, not only from without, but also from within. And so beware of Satan's wickedness and his wiles. We must never forget that Satan is determined to destroy this church. And he's determined to destroy you as a Christ follower. Lesson number three, revere the holiness of God. Listen, God, God is not some benign Santa Claus in the sky. First and foremost, our God is holy. In fact, Isaiah says he's holy three times. He's holy, holy, holy. And God's wrath on that Sunday against Ananias and Sapphira was simply the reflex of his holiness towards sin. Peter says they lied to the Spirit, but what adjective does he use before that? That he lied to the Holy Spirit. And God judged them swiftly and severely. Does this view of God offend us as far too severe? Let's be honest. I'm afraid many of us might find God's actions here somewhat offensive. But listen to what pastor and author C.J. Mahaney says. I quote his words. He says, If we are offended by the swift judgment of God described here, it reveals our ignorance of God's holiness, our sinfulness, and the seriousness of our sin in relation to His holiness. In the words of Pastor J.D. Greer, we shouldn't ask the question, why did they die? We should wonder, why do we remain alive? And folks, the reason we are here today, the reason we remain alive is because God is gracious and God is merciful. R.C. Sproul writes in his book, The Holiness of God, and I quote his words, God is indeed long-suffering, patient and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as opportunity to become bolder in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that he is powerless to punish us. But the supreme folly is that we think we will get away with our revolt. But two fresh graves in the churchyard show us that sin is deadly serious in the eyes of a holy God. So what was the result of this? What was the result of Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead in the church? Well, according to verse 11, the effect of God's judgment is that the fear of God came upon all those in the church as well as those outside the church who heard about God's judgment. This great fear that came upon the church it brings to mind a question, a question that was posed by John Murray. And his question was this, is it right to be afraid of God? 
Is it right to be afraid of God? The answer he gave in his book, The Principles of Conduct, is simple and profound. He says this, It is the essence of irreverence not to be afraid of God when there is every reason to be afraid. In other words, what he is saying is God is to be loved, but he's also to be revered. Yes, we are God's children by faith in Jesus Christ with all the rights and privileges of sons. That's a glorious thing, is it not? To be part of God's family, His eternal family, to be sons and daughters of God, and to be able to cry out to Him as our Heavenly Father. But this assurance as God's children should not lead us into a reckless disregard for His holiness and a lack of our obedience to live in righteousness. Does the God of Acts 5 strike fear into your heart? Listen, it did for these early Christians, and it should for us. I hope you leave here this morning with a greater fear of God than what you came in this morning. Don't you think that when they went to bed that night that they were trembling a little at what God had done? And I'm pretty sure that when they got up the next day, they got up with a renewed commitment, a renewed devotion and determination that they were not going to waste their lives on the trivial things of this world, but they were going to live on mission as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. As we wrap this up, let me, let me just throw out to you a very blunt question. Let me bluntly ask you are, you, are you lying to the Holy Spirit even now? Are you pretending to be more spiritual than you really are? In other words, to say it even more bluntly, are you a hypocrite? Most of us here today would say, Jesus is Lord. But what does your life say the rest of the week? Are you treating the Lord flippantly? Do you feel like that you have accepted Jesus as your Savior and now you have this heavenly visa card to send whenever and however you want? But we see from this story that God is not mocked. And when you take His Spirit and use it as a license for sin, you can see how He feels about it. And so I plead with you this morning, be like Barnabas. Not like Ananias. A lot of church people are deceived in the pews, in the chairs. They're so consumed by their appearance on the outside that they neglect ever dealing with their heart on the inside before God. And the answer to that is to encounter God's presence, to come before Him. And when we do, we will find that our sin becomes disgusting. But get this, His grace becomes amazing. Do you know what Ananias' name means? Get this, His name means God is gracious. That is phenomenal. His name means God is gracious. And Ananias, let me tell you, he would have found his name to be true if he had just been honest before God. He could have experienced the reality of his own name. He could have experienced the grace of God. God's great grace on his life. 
but he tried to hide from God and he experienced God's judgment. Listen, today, God is still gracious. And if we will get honest before Him, if we will come into His presence and confess our sin, God will forgive us in His great grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, You are the all-seeing God from whom nothing is hidden. We live open and exposed before your gaze. May we never pretend to be something we are not. Lord, instead, help us to live before you and others with authenticity. Help us to reject hypocrisy in our lives. God, forgive us for pretending to be more spiritual than we are. Forgive us for presuming on your holiness and our sinfulness. And Lord, help us to live as authentic Christ followers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kirk's going to sing a song, a chorus, for our response time. And let me encourage you, this is the time right where you're seated, to come into the presence of God and to confess your sin if need be. And while you confess, to claim His grace in the forgiveness that He offers in His Son, Jesus Christ. Will you get honest before God?